1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 23 to 27. That's the passage we'll be uh, taking a look at today. And so let me, just, let me just read that passage for us now, and then we'll dive right in. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 23. Now I do all this because of the gospel, so that I may share in the blessings. Don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will will not be disqualified. And so this is the word of the Lord. And so here we are, a little less than two weeks into the new year, and I'd like to ask you a question uh, this morning. How many of you, as we turn the corner into this new year, how many of you, how many of you made at least one New Year's resolution? Anybody? Yeah, quite a few of you. And uh, for those of you that did, for those of you that raised your hands, how many of you so far would say that's going pretty well? Quite a bit fewer people raised their hands that time. And I don't, I don't mean to be negative or a downer this morning, but statistically speaking, it's only a matter of time before your resolve kind of gives in and gives way and you find yourself kind of back to your old habits, back to your old struggles, back to your old self. In fact, I can say with some confidence this morning that I know something about each one of you here today. I know I know that you struggle quite often to truly be the person who you want to be. I know you struggle being the person that you know you could be and that you know you should be. And it can be easy, can't it, to get kind of down on ourselves as we struggle and strain at times to, to change ourselves and to improve ourselves, especially, especially this time of year. We all like to seem pretty polished on the outside. We like it to seem that we have things pretty well under control to those around us. But, but I know that what's going on on the inside is often telling a whole other story, and it can be, at times, a pretty messy one. But why is that? Why is that, especially for us as Christians? On the one hand, the Bible teaches us that Christianity is not merely a teaching or a worldview. It is a power. There is spiritual power in the gospel, and we should expect to see growth and progress in our hearts and in our lives as Christians over time. But on the other hand, the Bible tells us quite clearly, too, that we need to be honest with ourselves about ourselves and about, about the reality of the struggles that we face in this life. And in this passage uh, here today, the Apostle Paul gives us a couple of metaphors, I think, that tell us something important about the Christian life. In verse 24, Paul compares the Christian life to a race, right? A race that you need to be uh, ready to run and that you need to run in such a way, Paul says, that, that you're not just participating, but you're running to win. You're running to win the prize. And in verse 25, Paul says, this is, if this is gonna happen, you're gonna need to develop within yourself a certain degree of control uh, over yourself, Verse 25, he says, everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. 
And we all need this, don't we? Self-control, because quite often we're not really in control of ourselves. Everybody here today has some emotion, some habit, some relationship that you're, that you're having trouble keeping under control. We have trouble controlling our thoughts and our feelings, our urges, our, our tongues. We have trouble with various compulsions and addictions to things like drinking or drugs or lust or spending or gambling or technology or eating or rage. If we're honest and thoughtful about these things, it's hard to get to the end of any day really without uh, looking back and saying, why did I say that? Why did I do that? I wish I hadn't followed that impulse. And just to be clear, if you can't think of anything at all this morning that's uh, out of control in your life, it's very likely that what is out of control in your life is your pride and your self-righteousness and your, at some level, your own self-deception about your pride and about your self-righteousness. We all struggle with self-control in one way or another, and this passage, I think, has something uh, to teach us about this. The word for self-control that Paul uses in verse 25 there, it's the same word Paul uses in Galatians chapter 5 when he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 verse 22, it says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what? And self-control. And the Greek word there in Galatians chapter 5 and here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 too, it's the same word. And it has two root words in it. One of those words is ego, which means self. And the other is kratia, which means command or, or rule. And so self-control from a biblical perspective is having a certain command over yourself, being able to rule over yourself, to master yourself in some sense. In the old King James translation, this very same Greek word is translated into English not as self-control, but as, as temperance. That's not a word we really use much anymore, temperance, right? Except we still use part of that word today, don't we? Only in a shorter form. The word is, the word is temper. We talk about losing your temper, which of course means losing control. Losing control of yourself and, and certain emotions, and think about this with me. Self-control really is synonymous, isn't it, with, with being free. Because if you're not self-controlled, then you're out of control. And if you're out of control, then you're a slave to some other forces. And so to be self-controlled is to be free in some sense. And I hope to show you how this passage shows that to us. And Paul here, he's, he's using this illustration of an athlete preparing for a competition to get across something to us about the biblical understanding of self-control and about the unexpected freedom that, that can flow from it. And so let's unpack some of this. Let's talk about how Paul uh, ran his race and how he ran it well and how we might do the same in our own lives and there are three things I'd like to draw out of this passage. Something first about Paul's perspective and how he, how he saw himself. Something about Paul's passion as well and what he, was, what he was setting his heart on. And something about Paul's prize as well, the goal of it all for Paul. 
First, Paul's perspective. We do need to approach this life with the right perspective, with an honest and humble perspective about ourselves, about our sin, and about our Savior, too. If we don't have the right perspective on these matters, we will struggle in the long run to see any lasting progress in our lives. Paul started out talking about running in this passage, running a race, but then he mixes his metaphors, doesn't he? In verse 26, he starts talking about boxing. He compares the Christian life to a fight, as if each day you're stepping uh, into the ring and you need to be ready. Elsewhere, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul portrays the Christian as a soldier in a war, battling against a very determined and a very uh, dangerous enemy. And with each one of these metaphors that Paul puts before us here, what I want you to consider is that, is that if you go into any one of these scenarios unaware or unprepared, things will very likely not go well for you. You have to train for a race. You have to prepare for a fight. You have to ready yourself for war if you ever hope to win. And a big part of that training, a big part of that preparation, friends, is doing all you can to to be aware of who your opponent is and of knowing who you're fighting against and understanding uh, the nature of the battle. The same Apostle Paul who's writing these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he very famously and very very honestly in Romans chapter 7 gives us a fascinating glimpse of the battle being waged within each one of us. Listen to his words in Romans chapter 7, verse 15. He says, For I do not understand what I am doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Verse 17, So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. Verse 18, For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh, For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. And those are some pretty startling statements by the Apostle Paul, but they're also some very honest and realistic statements Paul says there's me and then there's something inside of me. It's called sin. There's evil in sin living in Paul and and living in us too. Sin is not something that just acts upon us from the outside. It's not something that kind of comes in and temporarily uh, camps out. And if you you know what you're doing, you can kind of shoo it away and get rid of it. No, it is at home within us. It dwells in us, it is deeply rooted in us, and it is at war with us. Whenever I think about those words in Romans chapter 7 and what Paul is saying there, I'm always reminded of of something terrible that happened many years ago. In 1999, a Boeing 767 took off from JFK International Airport. It was a full flight en route to Cairo, Egypt. And a little while after takeoff, things went bad in that airplane very quickly. The first officer, officer, you see, he waited for the co-pilot to leave the cockpit. And when the pilot left the cockpit, the first officer, he, he disengaged the autopilot that was controlling that airplane. Then the first officer proceeded to move the throttle levers from their cruise 
uh, power settings back to idle, essentially cutting the engines back altogether. Seconds later, the nose of that plane pitched downward and the airplane entered a free fall. And records show that as this was happening, the pilot managed to make his way back into his seat and he began uh, battling uh, the co-pilot for control of that airplane. You see, the pilot was in his seat. He was trying to pull back on his control, trying to uh, bring the nose of that airplane up. And at the very same time he was doing that, the first officer was pushing his controls forward, keeping, keeping the nose down and keeping that plane in that lethal dive until it plunged into the Atlantic Ocean, killing all 217 people on board. In a way... The battle in that plane's cock cockpit that day is a picture of the inner life of, of you and I as Christians at times as sin seeks to hijack control of our lives and to bring us down. We live in this, this strange in-between tension as Christians. Our, our sin has been dealt with at the cross, but it's still there, living within us, ready to spring into action Paul says, ready to seize an opportunity if we get careless and, and give it one. And all this, I know, can sound very bleak, and it can seem very bleak, too, when we're struggling with it. But we must also be careful not to give sin uh, more power than it actually has or to fall into despair over it. Paul called himself the chief of sinners, the worst of them all, but the same Paul was also one of the most joyful one of the most anchored, one of the most self-controlled and influential leaders of all human history. Paul was open and honest about his very real struggle with sin, but at the same time, he didn't, he didn't dwell on it. At some level, admitting and acknowledging our own sin is not a sign of weakness. In fact, it can be a sign of, of maturity. It can be a sign of a humble an honest perspective as a follower of Jesus. But underneath it all, it is because Paul knew the depths of the depravity and the sin within him that caused him to be utterly dazzled by God's grace and by God's gospel in, in ways that changed his life. The more you can see clearly and honestly the bad news about yourself and about your sin, the more you can be changed by the good news. And that was surely the case with Paul. And what does Paul do when he gets to the end of Romans chapter 7 after talking about how divided he feels within himself? Does he move into despair or despondency over all this? No, he actually turns a very encouraging corner. In verse 24 of chapter 7 of the book of Romans, he says, what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this mess, from this body of death? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Far more often than not, you're going to find Paul not talking about his sin, but talking about his Savior and what his Savior did for him and what that means to him and, and for him and what it means for us too. You see, Paul knew that when he became a Christian, he went from being in a battle that he could never possibly win to being in a battle that he could never ultimately possibly lose. And that changed him, and it should change us. And that perspective, it was needed by him, and it's needed by us too, down in the trenches as the battle wages on day by day. And so then, if that's the battle we face within, the battle 
over self-control in many ways. How do we do it? How do we approach this? We talked about Paul's perspective, but let's talk now about Paul's passion and what he has to tell us about the importance of, of what it is that our hearts are seeking after most. How do we get self-control? How do we engage this fight anyways? Some say it comes down to, to willpower, right? Just trying really hard, push down those desires, suppress them, just say no. Take the will and clamp down on your emotions and, and your desires. That's how you do it. Others would say that the way you get control over your life and find out, find out who you really are is not to suppress your feelings and desires, but, but to discover them to get in touch with your deepest emotions, to embrace them, to uh, express them. That's the way to the very best version of you. It's not about self-control, it's about self-discovery, they would say. The Bible, though, doesn't talk in these terms at all. It would say that both of those approaches are, are setting you up to fall. Paul says, look at the athletes, look at how they do it. How can they be so disciplined in their lives and you know the stories of Olympic athletes giving up everything, sacrificing uh, their time and their money and their entire childhoods in many cases, living lives of incredible self-discipline and self-control. But the way they're able to do that is far more than willpower. It's far more than willpower that's getting them where they want to be. Surely at times they don't feel like training eight hours a day. Surely at times they want to eat that bag of Oreos they want to stay out late partying with their friends. They want to sleep in till noon. Surely at times they want to do these sorts of things, but they don't do it. Why? Because there's something they want more than all those other things. They've got their hearts set on something higher than those things. They want athletic glory, right? They want excellence and success. They want approval and respect and accolades. They want to they want to win more than anything else. And as a result of that, they have self-control over all these other areas of their lives. Friends, that's where self-control begins. It begins in the heart. In the book of Genesis, you uh, may remember Jacob and how he was working for a very a difficult man named Laban. He was doing very hard and te tedious labor for a very difficult and deceptive man. But Jacob knew, Jacob knew he had been promised, in fact, that if he worked seven years for Laban, he would, he would get Rachel as his wife. And Jacob wanted Rachel more than anything in this world. She was the beauty and the joy of his life. She was the passion of his heart. And we're told in Genesis chapter 29, verse 20, listen to what it says. It says, Jacob worked seven years to get Rachel. And then it says, but those seven years seemed only like a few days. Why? Because of his love for her. You would think it must have been hard to get up in the morning and go to that job day in and day out and, and to keep at it, but apparently not. His life seemed to be under control over that long stretch of time. He was able to uh, say yes to certain things and, and no to certain things because of what he had his heart set on and the goal that he had in view. Self-control flows more from the heart than from the will. Think about this. Think about what's going on with these athletes and with Jacob and with you in your own life. 
When you set your heart on something above everything else, whatever that something is, it, it reorders everything else, doesn't it? It reorders the rest of your life. It brings everything else, all the other feelings and wants and desires under its control. What the Bible is saying about self-control is that it's not a matter of the will. It's, uh, will. it's not a matter of uh, trying harder to suppress your desires or to shut down or shut off your feelings. Rather, it's about setting your heart on the one thing, the one passion that is going to rightly order and control all of the other desires of your heart. Because whatever your heart is most passionately loving and trusting in sets the course for everything else. Can you see that in your own life? Interestingly, St. Augustine centuries ago, centuries ago said essentially that sin is disordered love. And that's a brilliant understanding of what the Bible teaches. Sin is disordered love. It's loving things out of order. It's loving secondary things as if they're primary and primary things as if uh, they're secondary. And the Bible says, and Augustine says, disordered love will eventually lead you into a disordered and uncontrolled life. But if you rightly order your loves, making what is primary, primary, you will become increasingly a self-controlled and a free person. So the key then is finding the supreme thing, the liberating thing, the ultimate prize we were designed for, and letting it, letting it engage your heart undividedly. That's what brings self-control. It's a matter of the heart. And it does actually need to be one thing, one thing that is supreme over everything else. And here's the reason why. You can't simultaneously make the greatest passion uh, of your life, your career, and your family, and your health, and your hobbies, because they will compete with one another and their interests will contradict one another. And eventually, that will lead not to order in your life, but to disorder. Paul knew this, and he had a single overriding passion in his heart, and he, and he went after it with everything that he had. And so let's finish up by talking about that. Let's talk about the prize, Paul's uh, prize, the goal that he was going after. And this leads us, of course, to the question, what is, what is that one thing, according to Paul, that if you set your heart on it and make it your greatest passion, it can reorder and reorient everything else. Let's look at what it was for Paul, and, and, and the answer isn't, it isn't what you might think. In verse 25, we're told that athletes exercise self-control for a perishable crown that will not last, but we do it for an imperishable crown, one that will last forever. And at first glance, something Paul is talking about, about his salvation there, right? Something he's talking about running hard, being a good Christian so that someday God would bless him and accept him and save him. It seems to some that Paul is talking about training hard and running hard to bring about his salvation, to earn it, but that's not what Paul is saying. That's not what Paul is saying here. If that's what Paul was saying, he would be contradicting what he says all over the rest of the New Testament. And that is only in Christ am I saved, am I accepted, by grace alone, through Faith alone, not by my works, right? Ephesians chapter two, so that nobody, nobody may boast. 
Paul says over and over again, my salvation is not something I run or work for, but it's something I run and work because of. And so in verse 27, when he says, I don't want to be disqualified from the prize, he's not saying, he's not saying that if, uh, if I don't measure up, if I don't live a really good life, I may uh, find out in the end I'm not saved. Uh, that's not what he's saying. And so what is he saying? We begin to see what Paul is saying when we look up at verse 23. He says, he says I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. I do all this. So what is all this? He's talking about all of chapters eight and nine really there. He's looking back on all the things he does as a minister for Christ. And you do need to keep in mind, Paul was one of the four or five most influential leaders ever to walk this planet. But when you see what he had to do to go, what he had to go through to do all this, he was whipped, he was flogged, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked, he was imprisoned and persecuted, and in spite of it all, he kept running hard. And so how, how did he do that? Where did Paul get his self-control? He says, I do all this because of the gospel, so that I may share in its blessings, so that I may share in the blessings of the gospel, he says. First of all, what is the gospel? The gospel says that even though you have sin and evil living within you, even though you're deeply flawed and always will be in this life, even though you could never measure up on your own, Jesus, he, he measured up for you. And because he did, if you put your trust in him, you are loved, you are treasured, you are delighted in by God. You are fully and completely known by him, every thought, every motive, every word before it comes off your lips. Look at Psalm 139 to see what I'm talking about. And yet, and yet because of the gospel, and only because of the gospel, you are nevertheless fully loved by him, fully known, and fully loved anyways. That's a remarkable and life-altering reality if you take it in and if you let it if you let it take hold of you, and Paul was taken hold of, his, his life was transformed by that, and he certainly enjoyed and experienced the blessings of that. But when verse 23 talks about sharing in the blessings of the gospel, that, that word share doesn't mean so much to receive as it does mean to give it away. It means to share with others something that you already have. And so one thing Paul is saying here is not uh, what you might expect, what he's saying is that the great passion of his life, what he was setting his heart on above all else, and that which was ordering and bringing everything else in his life under control was not, it was not so much receiving salvation as it was giving it away. Paul is saying, I'm most certainly enjoying the blessings of the gospel, but it's the passion of my life not to enjoy them alone. The passion of Paul's heart and the prize he was pursuing was, was to have other people see the beauty of Christ that he saw. That's why in the verses leading up to today's passage, Paul said, I have become all things to all people so that by every means possible, I might save some. I might, I might win some for Christ. Paul says, if that's the one passion of your heart and the prize of your life, you're going to find it bringing everything else in your life under control. 
And Paul did that not only by sharing the gospel with his mouth, but he also did it by showing the gospel with his life. Paul wanted to so embody the gospel, he wanted to so reflect the gospel and to so display the gospel that anybody at all who looked into his heart and into his life could see how the, how the gospel was operating, how it had changed him and how it was continuing to change him. And what's really interesting is the way in which Paul became completely outward focused, completely other oriented in his approach to life after, after meeting Jesus. You never see Paul serving himself or his own interests. He was always counting others as more significant uh, than himself. It's ironic, really. It, it, it seems counterintuitive. When Paul was a Pharisee, he tried to have self-control so that he could achieve, right? So that he could excel, so that he could uh, go up the ladder, but that eventually turned into a dead end. You see, ironically, when you make yourself the passion of your heart, when you make your own self-interest and your own glory the passion of your heart, you will actually struggle to gain control over your life. In fact, Jesus would say, if you're intent on serving yourself and your own glory, you'll never find yourself. In fact, you're going to lose yourself. But if you base your life on loving and serving others with the gospel and for the gospel, you'll, you'll not only find yourself, but you'll become yourself. That was Paul's story as he ran the race. And that complete outward focus toward God and others turned him into a self-controlled person. The book of Hebrews also compares life to a race and it tells us something about, about how we should run it. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, the first few verses. Let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and give up. If you want to have self-control, if you don't want to grow weary and give up, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and his self-control. If you want to run your race well, then look to Jesus because he ran well. Jesus was a runner too, wasn't he? Going after a prize. Jesus left heaven and came to earth. He became a human being. He ran the race of being a human being like us in every respect, we're told. And he ran all the way to the cross. He endured and he never gave up, even though he struggled greatly at times with what he knew was coming at him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, right before going to the cross, Jesus was asking the Father, if there might possibly be another way, he was struggling. He was sweating drops of blood, but he didn't waver. He maintained control of himself and pressed on. He said, not my will, Father, but yours be done. Jesus knew he was going to die. He knew he was going to suffer. He knew he was going to be betrayed and, and forsaken by the Father. And so how did he face it? How did he 
How did he hold it together? That passage I just read told us it was for the joy that was laid before him that Jesus endured the cross. You see, Jesus, he had his heart set on something too. He had a prize in view too, and and nothing and nobody was going to uh, get in his way. It's the same thing I was talking about earlier, self-control. It flows not from the will, but from the heart. And so what was the passion of his heart that gave Jesus self-control and allowed him to endure the cross? What was the joy set before him? What was the prize he was going after? What was it that before the cross he didn't have, but that after the cross he did have? Friends, it was you and me. What Jesus had his heart set on, the thing that gave him self-control to endure the cross, it was, it was us. We're the prize. And so are you moved by that? Do you see that as beautiful? The self-control that Jesus had because you were the passion of his heart can bring self-control into your life as you make him the passion of yours. And when you see Jesus enduring what he did because of you, because you were the joy and delight of his heart, you'll find yourself able to endure too as you make him your joy and your delight. Let's pray.